On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and today I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Apple Bodemer. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Wonderful. Well, you're not only a specialist, you're not like the family docs they've had on or some of the other specialists. You're my first dermatologist, which I'm actually very excited about because we get tons of skin questions and, you know, especially for kids and teenagers and the acne, and then you have women in their menopausal years having some weird things going on. Um, so well, let's just get started learning a little bit about you. Can you tell me a little bit about your interest in medicine, how that kind of evolved to going to medical school and becoming a dermatologist? And by the way, guys, to become a dermatologist, you're like one of the smartest of the medical students. So <laughs> I'm just laying that out there. So please go ahead. We all, we all strive to be in the dermatology realm of elites well, and brain power. <laughs> I do think I'm in the best specialty, but it's because I love the skin so much. And one of the things that I love so much about it is because it really impacts people's quality of life. So there's a few life-threatening things that I deal with. I'm not seeing life-threatening things every day, but I see chronic illness all the time. And I feel like I have a really powerful opportunity to educate people about their overall health because also people are motivated about their skin. It's hard for people to feel motivated about their liver or their kidneys or even their heart or lungs unless something is going wrong. But with the skin, as soon as something starts to go wrong, people see it. Mm. And I think kind of going back, I, I, um, I, I'm, I sort of ended up in, in medical school because I wanted to go to vet school and I tried out all the areas of veterinary medicine and kind of concluded that the only thing I wanted to do was exotics. And back mm. in that day, there were only like six exotic veterinarians in the country and they flew all over the place to different zoos. Now there's a lot more, but um, I kind of thought, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Um, it would be really competitive. And, and I sort of sort of kind of like, I didn't want to do small animal medicine. And I sort of went through this deep soul searching about what I really wanted to do with my life. And I read a book by a woman named Candace Pert called Molecules of Emotion. And it's all about neuroimmunology endocrine, or neuroendocrinology. And she was one of the four, um, the people kind of in the forefront of that research. And it just totally blew my mind that the ways that our thoughts and our emotions can impact our biology. Um, and I just like, that was what, when I decided I wanted to go to medical school. So that brought me on that kind of first st stage of the journey. And then I got to medical school and I loved bits of everything. I loved like ENT. I loved, I loved parts of family medicine. I loved parts of internal medicine. I just kind of couldn't settle on which one was the, the right one until I was doing a dermatology rotation with, um, a really, really incredible clinician who'd been an internal medicine for many years before he went to dermatology. And he had a, a psoriasis patient who had a brain tumor. And so Aww. if anybody knows anything about psoriasis, it's this delicate balance of trying to suppress the immune system, that the immune system is over revved up. And, um, but the problem with suppressing the immune system too much was that would allow the brain tumor to grow. And so this patient was just a really tricky one to help navigate his journey toward, you know, towards health and, and nobody, Nobody had any thought that they would cure this brain tumor and nobody had any thought they'd ever cure the psoriasis. So it was balancing and helping improve his quality of life. Um, and he looked me in the eye and he said to me, um, he said, I know this brain tumor will kill me, but I would take it any day over the psoriasis just because of the huge impact it's had on his quality of life, his social interactions, 
you know, over his entire lifetime. And that was the minute I was like, this is what I want to do to be able to have that much impact on somebody's quality of life is, is to me a super um, honorable position to be in. Mm, that's a really awesome story. Oh my goodness. So when you look at the quality of life and you're absolutely true, but it, and it starts young, right? So we start having these uh, all sorts of hormonal changes and you'll see young teenagers dealing with severe acne and just the emotional impact it has on their self-esteem. So where do you even begin when you have someone come in with any skin problem? What is the first thing that you look at? Well, I sort of first want to get a sense of what direction they want to go in. Because if I sort of just come in with my agenda, then I know I'm not really going to be able to impact very much. Those people who maybe are in line with my agenda will kind of take it and run with it. And we might have some successes, but I'll lose a lot of people. So that's the first thing is I want to kind of find out where they're at, what they're comfortable with that, things that they've tried in the past, maybe from a dietary standpoint or from a kind of hormonal standpoint. Have they worked with other integrative, like other practitioners in the integrative realm? Like have they worked with a naturopath? Have they worked with an acupuncturist or something like that. And so then I have a good place of where we start. Um, even for those patients who kind of just come in when I'm having a very busy day and I don't have time to really get into that with patients, I always tell them we can start with diet, supplements, kind of lifestyle, and then we can go into pharmaceuticals. Like, where are you on the continuum? And, and when people tell me they just want to jump right in with drugs, I don't think that's closing the door on these lifestyle issues it might just be putting a pause on them. And what that tells me is somebody's been suffering for so long. They've been trying so many things before they've even gotten to my clinic and they just really need to see some improvement now. And then we can back up and we can go into diet and sleep and stress management and all of those lifestyle things that I know will help them get off of their drugs. But sometimes we just need that. And, and that's why I really love being in the place where I'm at as an integrative dermatologist with a, um, with a focus on lifestyle is because we can kind of jump in where the patient's at and then backpedal, or we can start with some of these ground um, things. When somebody comes in with mild acne and they're, you know, maybe in early teens or in that early perimenopausal stage where we can say, okay, here's some dietary things that we can work on first. Um, mm. But, but I think it's important to be able to go fluidly back and forth between so that we can meet the patient where they're at. And once we've gained that trust, then we can kind of go back and build some of these foundational um, tools that I think really help people. No, that's fantastic. So can you explain what integrated dermatology means exactly? And what do you mean by focus on lifestyle? Just so in case there's any questions. Yeah, yeah. So after my dermatology residency, which was a standard Western dermatology residency, I did a fellowship in integrative medicine through the University of Arizona. And the whole focus on integrative medicine is really to look at all forms of healing through a Western framework, taking into account evidence and safety. And sometimes we don't have the evidence we want. And that's where that safety piece comes in. If I know something is safe, I'm going to be more willing to go there. If I know, if there, even if there's not a lot of data, then if we have some data that says, maybe this isn't safe, then I'm going to want a lot more data telling me that it's a reasonable direction to go in. Yeah. Um, and you know, in my fellowship, we did a lot of training on nutrition. We did a lot of training on herbals. We did a lot of training on, um, on, on sort of how to bring other practitioners in as well as focusing on kind of sleep, other lifestyle things. And then just recently, um, I started attending the International Plant-Based Nutrition Lecture about five years ago, and that's when I made my transition after attending for the first time. Um, and I thought I would never be able to give up dairy. I never <laughs> thought I could do it, but I've, I've never looked back. <laughs> um, so, um, 
so then I, I completed, I did a fellow, I did the um, certification in lifestyle medicine. So I'm board certified in, in dermatology, integrative medicine and lifestyle medicine now. Fantastic. So you, the knowledge is certainly there and now you get to implement it with your patients. So as far as, okay, so you have someone and they're like, okay, this lifestyle integrative approach seems interesting. How do you start? Like, where do you assess? Let's say you just start with something that's um, I wouldn't say simple as acne, but acne, for example, yeah. for someone who's maybe suffering, because it is a very common ailment um, amongst people. Where do you start there? Well, I always start with diet and, um, and we talk about some foundational things and I've kind of shifted from doing a really extensive dietary intake and trying to get a sense of how people are eating now to, to kind of shying away from that and just jumping in with giving them some of the evidence and some suggestions, things that we know can have a big impact on acne. <clears throat> and the reason I started doing that was because I feel like once people have like laid out their entire dietary, you know, whether it's a three-day diary or one-day diary, that's kind of an intimate look at their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes just giving them evidence and information, sometimes they say, oh, I'm already doing that. Then I know we can move very quickly on to the next thing. Um, but if they sort of pause, and I, I think there's a lot of guilt people have around diet. Like, like it's something that we should be able to manipulate. And there's all these layers to diet that we have to dig through in order to get to a point where people can cha- make a change. And, um, and so sometimes I find by starting with like looking at their diet, it can be perceived as a like, oh, this is what you're doing wrong. So I don't like to do that anymore. I like to just talk about, and for, my, for acne in particular, and actually a lot of conditions, my, I don't jump necessarily right in with whole foods plant-based. I start with with dairy and low glycemic mm. index and try to get people eating lots of fiber. And I'll tell them, we really want to be increasing the plant-based foods in your, in your diet. And when I have people that are really like, yes, and they want more, then I give them forks over knives, game changers. I give them um, the dairy trap by Neil Barnard. I give them those reference, those resources. Um, just because I think sometimes it gives people a little step. If we can get them making one change that's positive for them, then they're more curious. And some people are curious right away and others, it just takes a little more time to build that trust and, um, and sort of momentum. Mm-hmm. No, I think those, those are some very valid points. So when we do, we do a three-day diary intake with every new patient, just because most of the time people are already mostly plant-based um, and they're looking for tweaking or help because they're just not seeing the results that they want. But it is interesting though, because you read these, these intakes and you'll see people are eating better than I do. So I'm like, I'm just like, dang, I, I wish I had that variety and color, all that, you know, I, I tend to get into a rut and it's like, it'll expand, expand. Um, but it's funny though, because they'll leave these little comments like, I know it's processed or I know too much sugar. And you're exactly right. So they do have this, they're really, fun. some of them are really funny, but some of them really give a detailed look into how that relationship was with food. Some will say, oh, I was bored. I was tired. I know I shouldn't, but I do. And, but that also helps me figure out how to frame the changes, like how to express to them the importance of this in a way that they'll connect to and want to move forward. So that's really, really uh, keen to do that. Um, so now let's say that you have someone who's implemented the dietary changes they removed dairy, which I found to be huge in skin health, just in my own experience, and but are really still struggling a bit. What are the next levels of an integrative physician looking at um, skin? Maybe it got a little better for a little bit, and but it's just still stuck. Yeah, um, well, I, I often ask about gut health questions, mm. bloating, constipation, if they're having heartburn, those kinds of things, and that'll tell me if we need to go deeper into something that needs to be healed. 
kind mm. of from the gut that might take um, some specific herbs that can be helpful. And this is an area that I've been growing in in maybe the last year to year and a half. So I still have lots and lots to learn there. Um, but yeah. that is, is I'll, I'll often ask about those supplements. And sometimes I refer to a naturopath because mm. um, I am in an academic institution. So I'm not having people come to me necessarily even thinking that they're going to be making any dietary changes when they sit across the table from me. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's kind of a little bit of a uh, like just a, the lens that I'm working through compared to something maybe that you're doing is, is I'm trying to get people to say yes to the first step, you know? Right. And, um, and so, so sometimes looking at that gut health, and then I often think about hormones, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And we often think hormones are big in women and teenage boys, but I am seeing a large number of young men in their late twenties, early to mid thirties, who are showing up with this acne on the jawline that we typically think of as hormonal female kind of acne. Mm -hmm. And what I think is happening is as our testosterone levels are dropping in the population, that not that they've, you know, that they've shifted and they've got female patterns, but that their testosterone level is low and their estrogens are starting to kick in. And I don't have any basis for this. I haven't done any studies. I haven't looked at levels, Mm -hmm. but there seems to be something amiss in that specific population. Um, And so it's not just women that I'll think about hormones for, not just teenagers, you know, with teenage boys, their testosterone is raging. And we know that that's going to drive a lot and anything we can do to kind of dampen that, like with increasing fiber in their diet, increasing soy can be really helpful because whole soy foods, and this is different than the isolated soy proteins, but whole soy foods like tempeh and tofu and soy milk um, and even edamame, they help first of all, there's fiber that helps get rid of those conjugated um, sex hormones. But we also increase a protein in our blood called sex hormone binding globulin. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the main ways that we bind up these maybe inactivated hormones and get them out of the system. You might think, well, those hormones are already inactivated. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because those hormones can be reactivated again, especially in the gut. If we don't have a, a healthy gut microflora, some of those bad actors that are supposed to be there in low levels, if they get kind of um, out of control and we have too many of those, they can actually reconjugate, they can deconjugate those hormones and they can send, get sent right back into to the, the circulation. So getting those hormones out really quickly is important. And so transit time with that high fiber, making sure that they're having regular bowel movements, that kind of goes into that GI part of the questionnaire that I'll ask about. And then, um, and then have talking more about soy and the role that it may play. And I know there's a lot of people that come to me saying like, oh, I've got a family history of breast cancer or testicular cancer. I'm scared about eating soy. And studies have shown over and over again that we don't need to be that. Actually, they're protective and they may be protective on multiple fronts, including protecting from some of the side effects that that women with breast cancer experience from chemo. And we know certainly when we're dealing with, with teens, I also bring up whole soy foods a lot because increased intake of whole soy foods, as you probably know, but during pre-pubertal and peripubertal timeframe dramatically can decrease risks of breast cancer and, and testicular cancer later in life. So it's one of the reasons I love, love working with kids mm-hmm. in acne when I get the chance to, because we have such a huge impact to make really long-term changes in their health habits. And usually it's a whole family that'll go along. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a parent who's really wanting to champion their, their son and they see the emotional toll that it's taken and they're, they kind of are willing to go there with diet, including all of the cultural and social things that go with it, 
um, I've seen it transform the health of multiple family members. And, you know, I think you'll like this story. I have a young, had a, this a while ago, a young woman who came in, she was eating candy and drinking soda. Her skin was terrible. She was in to see me for Accutane. She definitely needed Accutane. She was having significant scarring. There was no way that any diet change was going to turn that around quick enough to, to stop that scarring. Mm. So, um, so we were working her up to get her started on Accutane. Her triglycerides were out of the, over the, you know, just, um, you know, above the roof. They were super, mm. super high. Wow. And we can't, Accutane will increase triglycerides anyway. So we had to get those triglycerides down. And so I put her on some fish oil and we went through diet stuff. Her mom, who didn't speak English, there was a Hispanic, Mexican, I think, immigrant family. She was sitting right next to me, listening to all of it. And they went home and I said, let's go six weeks. Let's have you try some of these diet things for six weeks with the fish oil. And let's recheck your triglycerides in six weeks and see if we can kind of get you on Accutane. She came back, her triglycerides were like, I, I think they were like 96 oh, from wow. something above like 200 and or 199, I think they were. And, um, and so we were able to start the Accutane. She went through her course of Accutane, continuing the diet. Her triglycerides never got above 100, which is remarkable for someone on Accutane. She came off the Accutane. Her skin was looking great. Um, her triglycerides hovered around like, like the 70s and 80s after, wow. after Accutane. And her mom did it too. And her mom was pre-diabetic, wow. just started on insulin. And she listened to everything. They went home. They made all of these changes for the sake of her daughter's skin. It wasn't for the sake of her mom's diabetes, but her mom got off of her insulin too. And I think like that, those, those stories, they happen. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't know who's listening when you start Mm -hmm. talking about it, you know, and, and sometimes it's the patients that you think, oh gosh, I wasted 15 minutes. They're never going to make these changes. And they're the ones that come back and they, they say, I did everything you said. And now I'm down 20 pounds. I did everything you said. And now, you know, my hemoglobin A1C dropped by three points in the last mm-hmm. six months, you know, those stories that I'm sure you hear all the time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's just so, um, so exciting when it happens. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, I think we've had this conversation before. It's just, it's such a phenomenal experience to have every single patient come to you wanting to hear the message of eating a whole food plant-based diet, getting the rest. Like they're actively searching for lifestyle measures and then you have to have these really educated conversations. If sometimes you think a medication is necessary, you're like, okay, I'm not a drug pusher, but let's talk about this, you know, maybe for blood pressure, whatever. But um, so it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a good place to be. I, I'm fine to have those conversations. Um, so that is, that is really cool. So now we've talked about some acne. So you're talking about removing dairy, eating lots of fiber, whole food plant-based diet, really pushing the soy products, which I agree hundred percent. I've seen, I can definitely just say from the thousands of patients I've worked with over the course of time. And sometimes the skin is an incidental, you know, they don't even focus on that because they're worried about their high blood pressure or their diabetes. And they're like, oh my goodness, my skin is better. You know, it was like one of those things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other thing I had, you know, like you had mentioned also was, um, I kind of want to dive into the kiddos, like you had mentioned, like to talk about is eczema. So I have had tremendous results with removing the dairy and eczema kiddos. Any uh, thoughts or suggestions there for parents who are dealing with even these little infants under a year old with egg severe eczema? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, those are such hard cases. Um, and I agree with you, dairy is a big one, eggs, and for some people, wheat. Those are kind mm. of the three main allergens. And we have like soy is one. There are some people that respond to nuts. 
I want to say first off, these like food triggers for for eczema is much more common in kiddos, and most people will outgrow that. So in adults, it is something that definitely happens. Um, but when I have people coming in on really extensive um, uh, elimination diets, or they're eating very very limited numbers of foods, mm. then that's something that I want to sort of back up and say, okay, let's do this in a more consistent and educated way so that we can get you eating as many healthy foods as possible. Um, and with kids, you do have to watch that, especially with those little ones to be watching for failure to thrive mm. markers, because I certainly have seen that when parents come in and they have, you know, severe, severe eczema, they've, you know, they've gotten their skin prick tests. Um, so by the allergists, and I want to say those tests, those are a starting point to me, what mm. those tests give me is a platform to kind of say a negative typically is a negative, but a positive doesn't necessarily mean a positive. So doing food oral, like oral food challenges can be really important. That still is the gold standard for identifying food allergies. Um, but, but there's also this kind of the sensitivity part of it. And I think definitely with dairy, there's so many things that go with atopic disease, not just eczema, but the whole um, trifecta of asthma, allergies, and the dermatitis that goes with it. Like we also wanna look at those pieces too. And dairy can have a big impact on asthma and allergies overall too. So kind of looking at it from, from just a, um, from just a, like, how can we minimize the whole, um, the whole atopic march and how can we prevent that um, is, is really an important thing to do for those patients. And certainly with breastfeeding moms, you know, I generally recommend taking one thing out at a time, like start with dairy and see how they're doing and then I take out eggs and then I maybe will take out wheat for those people and then um, kind of see where we're at. And sometimes it's the, you know, with wheat, especially if you're, if people are like, I really want to be eating whole foods plant-based and I can't eat gluten and, you know, then, then doing that re-challenge can be helpful in telling because sometimes people don't notice mild improvement over time, but they'll notice a big flare. And, and I actually do this with, with my acne patients, anybody who I'm saying go off dairy, when they say like, oh, I can't give up ice cream. And I'll tell them, I'm not asking you to give it up. What I'm asking you to do is a challenge so that we know, so that you go off of it for three months. And then when you go back on it, eat a lot of it and see what happens. And when they get that flare, they, I, they can put two and two together and then they, then they identify. So instead of they had pizza with their kids or their friends and their acne's flaring, it just gives you more, uh, more tools to make educated choices. And you know, people that have bad flares over time, they're gonna make the choices that are gonna head them towards that whole foods plant-based diet. It's gonna be more beneficial for their overall health and the more they do it. But I, I think taking away some of the stigma about falling off the wagon or the cheating, you know, and, or, or this idea like, oh, I'm never gonna be able to eat these things I love ever again in my life. Um, you know, and, and for people, maybe some of the patients that you see with really, you know, bad diabetes and bad heart disease, like it really is necessary. But for me, I have a little bit more wiggle room and I have a little bit room to play with people most of the time that I can say like, well, just see how you feel. Let's keep track, not just of your skin, but see how you feel, like how much energy you have and those kinds of things. And I'll ask them to track all of that. And most mm -hmm. of the time people end up kind of drifting in the direction that, mm -hmm. you know, and not everybody yeah. does. True. So, you know, and it's interesting. Um, I'll have patients who will work on this diet, you know, they were kind of maybe coerced by family or they were like sort of interested and they start seeing some improvement, but then they do have that, you know, three months, they go out and eat the pizza or they go out and have the ice cream and they feel so miserable. They're like, oh, <laughs> you're exactly, it totally changes the mindset, the motivation. They're like, 
And usually I don't have any trouble with these guys after that. They're all about, you know, tell me what exactly to do to hone in even further. Um, but then we also have to be careful, like you had also mentioned with the atopic disease and the restrictive palate. I mean, it's really very common. Patients will come in on a very limited variety of foods. And like you said, I think these are not necessarily allergens they're just intolerances. And there's a, there's a way to build back into the diet and looking to see what's going on in the gut. But yeah, that, and that's always a very, very con serious concern because they're not getting the nutrients that they need. They're very restrictive. Some of them are underweight. Um, it's not, a, it wasn't a common problem, but I'm seeing it more and more in some of my patients who are, you know, following a very restrictive whole food plant-based diet. This is outside of, you know, just eating a wide variety of whole foods, but they narrow down even further, which I call it guru syndrome. They hear different people or a different podcast and they implement everything and then they're eating nothing. <laughs> so, um, which can, I think, lead to some, it's just a, yeah, it's almost like a orthorexia, I believe they call it, where it's a unhealthy view of a healthy diet. You're in, you know, the implementation is actually harmful. Um, so again, there's two extreme, there's always extremes to everything. As far as um, you hear people talk a lot about drinking water and different things. I get that question a lot. Um, mm -hmm. What do you suspect with that with skin health, as far as hydration and different things, a simple thing is, is just staying hydrated. Yeah. I think it's really um, kind of an undervalued aspect of health. Mm -hmm. And there have been very few studies. Every couple of years, I go through and I look for studies on hydration and skin health. And the only studies that we have are on skin health, on hydration, oral hydration, and the um, cutaneous microvascular, vasculature. Mm -hmm. And we know that that micro, micro, microvasculature works better when we're well hydrated. But there's very few studies looking at things like transepidermal water loss, which gives us an idea about how the skin barrier is functioning. There's very few studies looking at that. However, I think it was Cindy Crawford. So those of you who are old enough to know who she was in her heyday, she was uh, one of the first supermodels. Yeah. And, um, and she would, I, I think she, I saw a couple of times her interviewed about her skin beauty regime and drinking plenty of staying hydrated was at the top. Um, and so that's sometimes something I'll share with patients when they're like, because there was also about five or eight years ago, a study that came out that said, you only need to drink when you're thirsty. There's no need to focus on the 64 ounces of water. And that got a lot of publicity. Um, it wasn't a very well done study and it just got a ton of publicity. So that was out in the media. And I had a lot of patients coming to me saying like, I don't like water. And I hear that it, we don't have to drink that much water anyway. I'm like, no, you, you don't have to drink that much water, but your skin will be healthier and happier if you do. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when we think about what happens in the skin, we have all these tiny, tiny little blood vessels. And if we don't have enough blood volume to, to get there, those blood vessels, the important role that they play is to bring nutrients to the skin, hair follicles, oil glands, and to take waste away. Some of that waste is old used up hormones that still, even if they're used up and, and deactivated, they can still bump up against those hormone receptors and activate them to a weaker level. So we want things, we want fresh nutrients coming in and we want old nutrients getting taken out. And really that happens through our blood, our circulation. And if we're not well hydrated, those, those blood vessels don't have much to go in. Mm -hmm. The other thing about moisturization that's really important for eczema in particular is we use moisturizers. It's a complete misnomer. There's nothing that you put on your skin that will add moisture to your skin unless you're in the rainforest with an ambient mm -hmm. humidity of like 70%. Oh, wow. So most of the, all of the moisture in your skin is coming from your circulation. And what we do when we add, you know, oils, 
um, I'm a big, big fan of food grade oils for skin, um, skin hydration and skin health in general, but oils, ointments, creams, what we're doing is we're locking that moisture in and we're preventing it from, from being able to evaporate from the skin. And so if we don't have a good blood volume, then, then we're not gonna be able to help our skin stay moisturized. And that's one of the things we see in older people. I see probably more older people than younger people with a lot of skin cancer and, and um, dermatitis and dry skin. And that's a big problem because their blood vessels have gotten calcified, they've got plaque, even on those tiny little blood vessels. And that's one of the things that's happening um, at a micro level. It's not something that we can even really see on under the microscope. But those blood vessels are so, so tiny that anything that gets in there and blocks flow or not having enough circulation to kind of make it to the skin. Right. Wow. So, yeah, let's go to the an older population. Well, I live in Colorado where I'm pretty sure that every single time you, you just it's constantly the environment sucking out any moisture that goes in is like being sucked out. And when well, let's talk about the balance, right? So you see people who have a very oily skin texture, but I do know that when people switch to a whole food plant-based diet, that actually gets significantly better. Like the oil production, the sheen, all that seems to improve and almost balance to a normal level. But then if you do have people with really dry cracking skin, you had mentioned food grade oils, which what, what does be a regimen, a, a generalized regimen someone might want to use to help with like in their hands or their feet or other areas that you're, you've seen? <laughs> Well, so it depends a little bit. Everybody's skin is a little different. As we get older, we can tend to tolerate heavier oils. For my patients mm-hmm. who have rosacea, they can tend to heavy, tolerate heavier oils. Teens with acne, you don't want anything very heavy on their skin. So uh, for those older patients, people with rosacea, people with dry, flaky um, skin, coconut oil is one of my favorite. Eczema, for eczema, coconut oil is one of my favorite because it does have some mild antimicrobial properties along with all of the antioxidants. And I usually ask them to look for extra virgin coconut oil, organic is ideal if they can get that. Um, For teens with acne, I look for apricot kernel oil or jojoba oil. Those are the two lightest. And apricot, apricot, and which one? Jojoba. Jojoba. What is jojoba oil? Um, It's it's oil from the jojoba nut. It's J-O-J-O-B-A. So for the longest time, I called it jojoba oil. And my sister was like, "Um, no, it's jojoba. You can find that like Trader Joe's has a really nice organic jojoba oil that's really okay. inexpensive. Um, and it just takes a couple drops to moisturize your face. So you shouldn't be pouring a handful in and slathering on your face. That's going to make your acne worse. But um, but a couple of drops will help kind of hydrate the skin. And when, when we go back to acne in particular, acne is a problem of excess oil from underneath the skin. It's not a problem of oil on the skin. That's just a bystander. Mm. And when we strip the skin of too much oil with the toners and the, you know, too much salicylic acid, benzoyl peroxide, prescription tretinoin, whatever it is we're doing, we actually stimulate those oil glands to make more oil, which is what we don't want in people who have acne. So I find there's a much, much bigger problem with under moisturization than over moisturization. And so a big thing that I do is educate people on, you know, basic skincare, you still need to moisturize, even if your skin is on the oily side. Um, And we want to stop the toners and stop a lot of those those products, unless they need something cosmetically during the day to just kind of blot off some oil because of job or school or whatever that is, but it shouldn't be a main stay in their skincare regimen. That should be sort of an intermittent kind of in the moment type thing. And when we add back in jojoba oil in particular has a very similar fatty acid profile to our own sebum. And so what we're doing there is we're nourishing the skin and we're kind of giving those oil glands a message like, hey, I'm good. 
I don't need you to go into overdrive trying to protect me. You're, you can just take, like, just chill out for now. And so that, once pa patients understand that, then, then the idea of putting oil on their skin becomes a much more palatable, even for those pe people who have slightly oily skin. So I have two so, questions. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, so shea butter is a great one for hands, for dry cracked hands, people that have hand dermatitis in the winter because it sticks. Um, so I really yeah, like and that. So let me, let me make sure people heard you. You said shea butter. Shea butter, mm-hmm. Okay. And that's not a food grade thing, but it is a natural oil. Okay. And that's for the, the eczema and the hands and different things. So two questions, we'll get to the first one first and then the second one. Um, the first one is now let's say for coconut oil, because it's high in saturated fats, what is the absorption of that into the skin, into the circulatory system? Cause that can drive triglyceride elevation. Have you seen that or know any studies or where we could look for that information? Yeah. Um, I don't know of any studies specifically looking at absorption. Um, again, you don't need a lot, so you shouldn't okay. you don't even need a tablespoon, you know, okay. so, um, it's just real small amounts. And so even for people that are really um, you know, dealing with like Ornish style, really, really low fat um, uh, intake, I would say it's, I mean, we recommend eating nuts and, you know, raw coconut, those kinds of things can be, that, that's, you know, you're probably not, you're not going to be stimulating, um, you're mm -hmm. not going to be absorbing enough to, okay. again, and, yeah, I know yeah. some people lather up though, people uh, like their feet, <laughs> yeah. you'll be amazed so amazed yeah. with people. Well, no, you wouldn't be amazed. People are telling you what they're doing in their skin, but it, it always cracks me up with things that, like just go diving. You know, they're doing like oil pooling in their mouth, all this really odd, interesting things. Okay. So now what about for those of us who are on the um, older aging side of things and we start seeing skin start loosening and we're losing our elasticity, we're, we're starting to see these wrinkles and we're like, oh, aging's knocking on the door. Lovely. Anything there to help with the cosmetic side of aging? Mm -hmm. I mean, diet, what we put, you know, that, that's the biggest thing. Sun exposure, yes. that's one you, you deal with. I know I lived in Wyoming for a while and that high elevation can really take a beating on the skin. Yeah. Um, sunscreen I get way more than I should. <laughs> so, I mean, sunscreen is usually the holy grail when it comes to UV protection. To me, it's the backup plan. So we mm. really want to be looking at those protective clothing, wide-rimmed hats, wide-rimmed sunglasses, seeking shade when you can also being aware of reflection. So even if you're wearing a hat and have an umbrella and you're sitting on a beach, you are getting some reflection up towards your face. So um, mm. just being mindful of that, or people, you know, in the summertime in Wisconsin, lots of people spend lots of time on their boats and we have a lot of water around here. That's another place where you can get some reflection or even in wintertime, you know, most of us, when we're out skiing, we're pretty covered up, but, but these delicate areas on our face might not be. And so thinking about that, um, looking for mineral-based sunscreens when you need those. And the Environmental Working Group is a really great resource for keeping up to date on what new products are on the market. So um, so that's, you know, I think that's the number two thing. And then, um, and then in terms of like, what can you use topically on your skin? Like there's nothing really that's gonna take away the deep lines and wrinkles a lot. Some of that's genetics, some of it's our habits. You know, the furrowing you do when you're young, what my grandma said, if you make that face, your face will stick that way. Like it's really true. It just takes <laughs> 80 years to get there. So, um, so that, you know, those, those kinds of things, there's never been any studies on facial massage, but I suspect Ooh. that that could play a big role. I know there's a whole realm of Ayurveda medicine called Marma and that's facial massage using, um, using oils. And they have this very wide, um, uh, I don't know, it looks like a, something you might play the drums with. It's kind of like a curved 
um, surface. And a lot of times they'll have a metal on the surface, like a copper, or it might be a stone um, that that they use to massage the face with. And oh, interesting. it is really interesting. I, I hear it's really relaxing. I've never had it done myself. I have had a Ayurvedic oil facial, which was really relaxing and much more relaxing than any of the standard facials I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, which is not very many, I, I'm not a super, super, you know, I think if it's relaxing, that's great, but it doesn't usually do a whole lot for long-term skin mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, so, but rose hip, rose, rose hip oil, rose hip seed oil, I think is how you say it. That one has a ton of antioxidants and then carrot seed oil is another one that, um, it's very expensive. You know, I don't know if you have the money sitting around in your bank account and you want to spend it on that. I think that one is probably got more antioxidants, but it's these studies are not very forthcoming when it comes to some of these really um, less common oils. Carrot seeds are really hard to extract oil from. And um, so just maybe eat the carrot. Because they need the carotenoids and the, the nice yeah. glow. <laughs> nice flow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is a lot out there that we just don't know. A lot mm -hmm. of these supplements, I tend to be a little bit more like, let's first take care of the diet. I'd rather have people spend their money on, on eating more fruits and vegetables than diving mm -hmm. into, you know, hundreds of dollars a month in supplements. So, oh, um, yeah. you know, so there are some supplements out there that are marketed for anti-aging and, you know, all of these things, certainly B vitamins can help with energy level. If you're not taking in enough from your diet and, you know, sometimes, um, zinc is appropriate. So there are some times where some supplements are appropriate, but I think sort of a blanket, like if you're eating really healthy and taking maybe a basic multivitamin to fill in the gaps. And if you are plant-based then just some B12, I always often think about um, vitamin D as well. Mm -hmm. um, oh, one, one I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but going back to the aging thing, sleep, sleep is sleep and stress are huge. And we didn't really touch on that much today yet, but those yes. are huge. Yes, yes, yes. Sleep and absolutely but I will, I'm sure I'm getting, going to get this question. Um, we can dive into sleep here in a second. What about SPF of sunscreen? Is there a recommendation? Is there a highest level? Cause is a 30 just as good as a 50 or 60 that you see? I mean, is it worth the extra money? Where should we be looking? Yes. So, um, first of all, SPF only measures UVB radiation exposure or protection. And that's kind of tells us about burns, but it doesn't really, we don't have a good way to measure UVA radiation protection. And that's the one that's more important when it comes to aging because that penetrates the skin deeper and can, can um, kind of attack those deeper cellular DNA levels. So we, you want something that's broad, says broad spectrum. And that's one of the reasons I like this, the, the mineral blockers or the physical blockers is because they, they do do a decent job at protecting against UVA. If you're focusing on chemical blockers, usually you need a combination to get even reasonable UVA protection. And like I said, we have no way to measure. So we really don't have a good way of knowing that. When it comes to UVB um, radiation exposure, the SPF is a very good measure and it's kind of a logarithmic scale. So I, people, I'm just gonna watch my finger because it kind of goes like this and tapers off. So an SPF of 15 kind of has you here. An SPF of 30 gets you up here, you know, and an SPF of 70, eh, there's maybe, maybe a little bit of difference by maybe a couple percentage points but it's not significant in terms of the amount of UV radiation that it's going to block. Where those higher SPF numbers do come into play is in the amount of time you can be out in the sun before you start to get red. And that's much higher in an SPF of 70 than it is in an SPF of 30. However, we sweat. Normally our skin sloughs off into the environment all day long. And after two hours, whether you put a 70, 100, or 15 or 30, you still need to reply it every two hours or after getting wet. 
because if you put your waterproof sunscreen on, hop in the pool, 20 minutes, you come out, you towel off, all of that sunscreen is on your towel. It's protecting your towel, not you. And that's really, the towel doesn't need it. You're the one that needs it. So really reapplying is, is a big thing. Mm. And then to get those numbers, like the way that they do it in a, in a clinical setting to measure those numbers, they're using about an ounce of sunscreen to cover a body in a bathing suit. And so my rule of thumb is a handful to cover a body in a bathing suit. So a kid's gonna have a smaller hand, smaller body. Um, in adults, that ounce is about a shot glass, but you have a variety of sizes of adults too. So I think that palmful really works well. And if you fill your hand with sunscreen, a palmful of sunscreen, you'll notice that you probably never are putting that much on your skin. So, which is why I say it's very imperfect. You know, even if we took away all the controversy on the chemicals and the nanoparticles and the micronized and all of that, and the, the heavy green, like white film that it leaves on people's skin, and we take away all of that, we still are left with a fairly imperfect UV mm. protection yeah. method. And so that's why it, it's important as a backup plan, but it really shouldn't be the first line of defense. Hmm. Okay. And so you had mentioned UV protective clothing. Is there a particular brand that you like or what should they be looking for on a label to know the what label that means? Should say, it should say UPF 50. And what that okay. means is that only one fiftieth of the UV radiation that hits the surface of that fabric will get through to the bottom of it. Um, I have seen in the beginning, that's all that was on the market, but I have seen some companies label the things as like UPF 15, UPF 20. Like I would not mess with that. I would just go straight for, because there's plenty of them out there that are really good quality. They've come down in price. There's a lot more on the market to choose from. Um, Salumbra, um, sun, sun protections. Um, one of my favorite, favorite products are these sleeves. So, because I love to hike. I like to hike with my dogs. I have kids who are involved in things in the summer. And especially when they were little, you'd be on a soccer field and there's not a shade structure in sight. So um, these sleeves are things that like will cover the back of your hand. The fingers are usually cut out or they'll start at your wrist and then they go up to your kind of upper arm. So you can wear it under any t-shirt that you already have. Um, mm. There's a company out of Denver that I really love called Eclipse Sun Glove. They make really nice ones in a variety of colors and sizes. If you go on Amazon, you're also going to find a lot. There's just, there's a lot on the market. And I think it's, you know, there's different price points, different style points. Um, so as long as you have that UPF 50, um, mm -hmm. they also, the Skin Cancer Foundation will, will endorse some products. And if you know, if it doesn't mean if it's not endorsed by them, that it's not a good product, but if it is endorsed by them, then you know that it is. Gotcha. Well, that's really helpful. Okay. And so then you had mentioned sleep and stress. So what are you recommendations to you? We're going to push a more integrative side here with the sleep yeah. and the stress. What would be your recommendations for folks then? Um, well, well, I do have a handout that I give patients on sleep hygiene. And I'll just mm -hmm. ask them, about how many hours of sleep are you getting? And do you feel rested when you wake up? That's the extent of my screening for sleep. You know, and, and um, a lot of times I'm seeing people with young kids are getting like five hours of sleep regularly or you know, they've got a new job and they're really trying to build their career. Um, and especially when, you're, when I was in my 20s, I could do it very easily. Now that I'm in my 40s, it's harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get easier either. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, um, that, that, so I'll kind of start with that and I'll let them know how important it is for sex hormones in particular. Mm. If you're, basically when we don't sleep, our cortisol is our stress hormone and it needs to go up and down throughout the day for us to have a good healthy sleep-wake cycle for our, our sex hormones because they also go up and down throughout the day and throughout a monthly cycle. And um, 
And when we flatline our cortisol, which is basically we don't get enough sleep, the cortisol doesn't do the normal um, up and downs throughout the day. It's more not like flatlining. It's more like one peak and crash is kind of what happens to it. But, um, but we've basically taken away the normal rhythm. So that's what I mean when I say flat, like lining kind of more from a cardiology mm-hmm. standpoint. You're, rem- you're just messing up the circadian rhythm of the yeah. cortisol. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And that messes up your sex hormones and mm. it messes up your, you know, because then it shifts your melatonin and your melatonin gets messed up. And when your melatonin is messed up, that can have an impact on your ability to metabolize vitamin D and it, it messes with your sex hormone um, cycling. And that's kind of where these ideas of like adrenal fatigue, if whatever that really means, but, but right. burnout is a much better um, term for it because it's not just the adrenals. It's not like the adrenals just kind of poop out, but we are kind of taxing things a lot, not mm-hmm. just the adrenals, but, but other organs as well, including mm-hmm. our sex or, or organs, which like ovaries and testes, that's where a lot of these sex hormones come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of from the sleep standpoint, that really is a place to talk about that. And also just inflammation in general, we have tons of studies that show that lack of sleep can just cre- can create can elevate inflammatory markers even in the absence of any identifiable inflammatory driver. So it's mm-hmm. it's really important. And then it's kind of intertwined because sleep and stress go hand in hand. When you're not sleeping, you're going to respond to stress less well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's I usually try to talk about sleep first. Sometimes I need to go to stress first to get a o- door open into sleep. And so so mm-hmm. it just really depends on what how where someone's at. Mm-hmm. When it comes to stress. Um, that's a little easier because we have a lot more studies on stress and, mm-hmm. um, and, and we have a lot of really great, great tools. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest hurdle I see with people is identifying like stress is good. We need stress. It's how our bodies respond to stress that can be either good or bad. And that stress isn't bad. So people come in again with a lot of shame around stress, like, Oh, you know, my life's crazy. I haven't been meditating. I haven't been doing yoga. And then that creates its own amount of stress. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think just recognizing that our lives go through cycles where we have more on our plates and less on our plates. And sometimes the things on our plates are really, really hard things to go through mm-hmm. and, um, and recognizing that there's no amount of meditation that's going to take that away. What meditation does is helps your body respond more healthy to it, you know, mm-hmm. and help you be more resilient in the face of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, I do a lot of recommending breath work. That's one of my favorite go-to things. Oh that my I goodness. I was just about to talk about that. That's oh. fantastic. What do you yeah. tell them to do? I give them resources. Um, and I usually take them through the four, seven, eight relaxing breath. That's my mm-hmm. favorite. Mm-hmm. And it's super easy to do. I actually had one woman who came in with psoriasis. And I think like the one thing that she took away from me is she went home and she wrote that exercise out on a card and had it laminated, kept it in her wallet. And when I saw her back four months later for follow-up, she pulled it out of her purse and she said, you changed my life. And I was like, what? So, I mean, I never would have imagined that that would have had such a powerful impact on her, but it really did. And I think what I love about that is it doesn't put you into a a trance state. You don't need a Mm -hmm. pillow. You don't need 20 minutes in a dark room. Mm -hmm. Like it's something you can do on the fly at a stoplight in the grocery store line you know, like while your kids are screaming or while the person in front of you is fumbling for their cash and you've got a meeting, whatever it is, it's something that you can really do in real time throughout your life, throughout your day. Mm-hmm. And you can be in a meeting. So I use 478 breathing a ton. I've been using it for years with patients. And um, when I was seeing patients in person, you know, they come in with elevated blood pressure. And so we'd go through a cycle of 478 breathing. And I'll explain what that is in just a second. But I would see her systolic blood pressure drop 15 points. And 
pretty awesome. And I'm reading, I'm listening to a book now called Breath by James Nestor. I don't know if you've heard. I've heard of it, it and I haven't yet read it. It's on Okay. I had so many patients tell me about some of these things that he's implementing. And I was like, this is okay. Interesting. So now I got, I had enough patients tell me about it. That I was like, I'm going to invest my time and money and, and get his. And now I'm like, so intrigued about the breathing side. And I knew breath work was important for, you know, the sympathetic, parasympathetic balance, your autonomic nervous system, but not to the degree of control that we could have over. I mean, it's just, it's utterly fat. You have to listen to this book. And I'm trying my hardest to get Mr. Nestor on my web, my, I've written, I don't know what else I'm going to have to do. I, I, I may send him, I found on his website, he likes certain pairs. I might send him a gift bag or something and a handwritten note. Um, I'm, I'm that desperate. Um, yeah. That's how I got, you know, I, I invested and spent some time with BJ Fogg in one of his training camps. That's how I got him on my podcast. Cause I was like, I'm so intrigued by this. I have to talk yeah. to you. Um, but yeah, so the four, seven, eight breathing, just real quick for those who don't know what that is, it's, it's four cycles of breathing in over four seconds, holding your breath for seven and breathing out over eight. And that, that holding your breath and releasing that really long exhalation does a lot to switch um, some of the nervous system. You're changing the oxygen capacity in your body to actually more because more oxygen is being unloaded into your tissues. And it's just really fascinating. But anyway, it's four cycles, four breath, four cycles in, and account of four, you hold for seven and out for eight. And so again, so that's awesome. Was her psoriasis better? I was just curious about that. Um, not at that point. Eventually we did ah. get psoriasis better, but you know, right. a lot of times with these skin chronic things that have been going on for a long time, I, I tell people, this has been here for 20 years. It's not going to yeah. go away. You know, so we yeah. chip away at little pieces. Right. So, um, yeah. And that's funny. Cause that's a, that's a re very recurring common theme with patients. They're 60 years old, diabetic, hypertensive, overweight. They're like, I switched my diet 30 days ago. Why don't I cure it? I'm like, <laughs> I said, you partied for 60 years. Your body's going to take a little time to recover. It's in a hangover mm -hmm. state, you know? So I like you, you're living on borrowed time already, buddy. So be patient. Um, so yeah, it's really funny. Those, those things that people will come back and say, so fantastic. Oh my goodness. I've already had you here an hour. Um, so I'm sure we can continue talking. We'll probably uh, get lots of ton of questions. We have you on again to answer those more specific questions. Cause I like I said, Skin questions are going to be very common. Oh, and by the way, everyone, she's going to be on the plant-based telehealth webinar in August. It's, I think, the second one in August. I think it was September, right? No, oh, was it September? It was, yo, you're right. It was September because I had the other two in August booked out with nephrology and a, and a plant-based support group. Got it. You're in September. And so be looking for that on the plant-based telehealth uh, site, plantbasedhealth.com. You can register for the website and or the the webinar or go to our Facebook page. We have them there too. So tell us, you know, Apple, I love your name. It's such an appropriate thing for you to be vegan. Um, <laughs> first of all, what would be the final uh, advice you would give to our audience? You know, anything that you're feeling in your heart that you should share? And then how can we find you and connect with you and learn further about maybe patients want to come see you or follow what you're recommending? Yeah, so I work in an academic center right now. Um, and so my patients are limited to Wisconsin. That's the only place I'm licensed to actually practice medicine. Um, but I, um, I also work with Learn Skin quite a bit. Um, we do a lot of educating for professionals um, around integrative approaches to dermatology. And I've got my two partners, Peter Leo and Raja Sivamani are amazing. We've, um, we've 
been working to train dermatologists in this philosophy of um, integrative approaches to dermatology, you know, and, and I'm always putting my spin on the, the diet and lifestyle stuff. Um, so we do have a lot, like Learn Skin, we've got a lot of free podcasts. There's a podcast, there's webinars um, that are put on, not just by me, but I help organize all of that. And um, if you do look for me, I do have a small website out there that I haven't touched in probably a year. Um, and eventually that will get up and running. So if you come across Apple Skin Health, that's something that's kind of on the back burner for me right now. But um, but it's something that I that I want to look back at. And, and I kind of started with a project on hair loss. So that might be something that people come across to just let you know. And as we were talking, I was thinking, I didn't even ask one of the other huge questions is hair loss. Do you have any suggestions for someone maybe who's transitioned to a diet like this and had hair loss or having hair loss? Where should we start? Just anything real quick. Should you have an article yeah. we could find? <laughs> yes. No. And we, we could do a whole session on hair oh, loss. And all the we different probably types. should. Maybe we'll um, just do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I think like just one quick tidbit for people maybe that are transitioning to the diet and experiencing hair loss because mm. of the it's a stress on the body to even, and, and I always say stress can be good and this is a good stress, mm -hmm. um, but just that change, that hair will grow back. If you mm -hmm. experience the call it telogen effluvium, kind of the shedding yep. that can happen. I have a hand up on that exact thing. Yes. <laughs> Take some patience and I recommend scalp massage. No data to recommend, mm -hmm. you know, no data to support it, but anytime like staying well hydrated and massaging your scalp helps stimulate blood flow and can be really okay. soothing and help sort of offset some of the anxiety that that hair loss causes. Cause I do see where the hair loss starts, the anxiety kicks in and then it's just a vicious cycle. And the best thing mm. you can do for yourself is just be patient, recognize that this is a short-term thing that the hair will grow back and it will probably grow back healthier mm -hmm. if you're eating healthier mm -hmm. and, um, and kind of just not let it have too much of an impact on your life, which is, is hard. I recognize that's hard. No, absolutely. And I, I actually, seriously, it is, it is a stress. People are eating less calories. The other thing that I see sometimes is that people are not eating enough. And I'm just, I'm not saying that that's everybody. It's certainly not the majority, but there are these other folks. I'm like, you've lost significant amounts of weight. You're now borderline pretty much underweight. You got to eat more calories too. So yeah. that might be the other situation. It's malnutrition. So yeah. I don't care what you're eating. You got to eat more. Go ahead. And then also thinking, just thinking about you could be having an iron deficiency if you're not mm -hmm. being careful about how you're you're distributing your food throughout the day. Um, yeah. And so vitamin D and iron, and then thyroid issues. Um, yes. You know, I don't, you know, those are just things to think about. Not just like, oh, it's not a problem; it'll all come back. There are some medical conditions that should be kind of looked at and considered. Well, let me let me tell you what I'm finding. Now, see, now we got on another tangent, but yes. I'll just mention this very quickly. Again, I'm getting some very strict people who are eating a whole fluid-based diet, which is fine to a degree, but they're also SOS-free, so salt, oil, sugar-free. Mm -hmm. So now they're removing any potential iodized salt if they don't like, you know, sea vegetables or something. I'm seeing folks coming in with subclinical or new overt mm -hmm. hypothyroidism from yeah. lack of iodine. So I do a 24-year in iodine. It's low. We put them on an the iodine supplement. Boom, clears it right up. So I'm like... Okay, guys. <laughs> and I'm seeing it more than, I would say probably two out of 10 of patients that I get to, to do the 24 hour urine test, which is a big obstacle in of itself, is coming back low and sometimes significantly low. Um, anyway, interesting. So more on that later. We'll definitely have to have um, Dr. Apple back in time to do more on hair loss because I'm sure that will be a big question. So all right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bodemer, for all of your time and expertise. We so appreciate specialists who take the time to really 
you know, take the time and, and use an integrative approach for their patients. So it's important, so important because primary care doctors can't do everything <laughs> and we can't, we're not supposed to, we're all together to in this together. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. I learned something too. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. All right, you guys, thanks for listening and see all the links below to Dr. Bodemer's site, including the Learn Skin, which is really a great resource too, by the way. Um, and I was on that podcast. That was a lot of fun. So we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks for watching. And I hope you enjoyed that video. Before you go though, please hit the subscribe button and the alert button. So you will be notified whenever we upload any new videos. On Monday, we upload the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. Now, if you'd rather listen to the podcast, you can find it on all the major platforms such as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and even Spotify. On Tuesdays, we upload the Doctors In. This is where I answer your questions. Thinking of that, could you please comment below any questions you might have about health or wellness or any topics that you would like me to cover? Now, if you're looking for more resources on how to start a plant-based diet, sustain a plant-based diet, exercise, recipes, anything regarding wellness, we've got you covered. Check out healthyhumanrevolution.com. And again, thanks for watching.